Uh, I don't know if you have found this out, but uh, I feel like it's more true lately uh, than I've thought about it before, which is uh, knowledge really is power, isn't it? Uh, you know, I, I, I hearken back, I guess, to my elementary school days where I, I assumed I was on a bunch of posters in my library. You know, I know schools don't have libraries anymore. They have like knowledge hubs or whatever the cool thing is to call a library these days. But back in the old days when I went into a library, you know, they had all these, you know, motivational posters. And they would say things like knowledge is power, right? And if knowledge is power, then that means it's addicting, right? Because power is addicting. And, uh, you know, as I've uh, reflected over these last few weeks, I've noticed how addicting it is to accumulate power. And by power, what I mean is it's addicting to accumulate knowledge, right? And so uh, whether you're, you know, into the conspiracy theory side of things or you are, you know, sort of on the other side of the political spectrum and looking at uh, the major news outlets, right, there is a tendency for us to equate knowledge with power, uh, because let's be honest, right now, everybody we know of feels very powerless right now. I mean, isn't that part of the reason why we're all mad right now? And, you know, whether you, you know, want people to wear masks or you don't want to wear masks, I mean, there's this sense that we have lost control and power, right? And so what we've done is we've turned to knowledge. And whichever, you know, source of knowledge you prefer, that's what you're turning to. And this is why, you know, you can't stop finding out more and more, right? Because it's addicting, right? Because Knowledge is power, right? I mean, I learned this really early on, even as a kid. You know, um, I don't know if you ever did this when you were a kid, but uh, occasionally when I was a child, when I really wanted to know what my parents were up to, <laughs> or really they were probably trying to figure out what I was up to, uh, what I would do uh, as I would, my brother never did this as far as I know. He was the dutiful older brother, right? I was the rebellious younger child. Uh, but what I would do as a child occasionally is I would leave my bedroom, you know, late at night, and I would sneak into the hallway uh, near the living room, and then I would crouch down and hide behind the couch, and I would listen in on what my parents were talking about. Because even at that early age, I knew what? Maybe I knew knowledge was power. <laughs> and if I could figure out what my parents were doing, maybe I could exert some power over the situation, right? Well, I don't know if you've ever, uh, you know, questioned, you know, what's going on, or uh, you've wanted that sense of wanting to know what in the world is up. Uh, but if you've never have asked that or wanted to know that, I bet you are thinking about it right now. And that same sense of not really knowing what's going on, uh, that same sense of wanting to sort of peek in and listen into secret conversations is very similar to what we're seeing in John 13. You see, this is the night that Jesus is going to be betrayed. Uh, by this time tomorrow in the story, Jesus will be dead. And what's happening is Judas has just left the upper room. So if you look at verse 31, when it says, and he had gone out, that means Judas. Uh, just in the few verses before that, Jesus uh, washes all of his disciples' feet, including Judas. And then he says, one of you will betray me. And of course, Jesus uh, signals to Judas in some way that Judas understood that he knew what uh, Jesus was saying, but no one else knew. You know, maybe he, you know, whispered it to Judas. He says, go and do what your heart is set out to do. And Judas now leaves, and there's this sense now that Jesus can finally give the real knowledge. Judas is gone. Uh, the betrayer, uh, the liar, the one who lifted his heel against him is gone. And there's this sense that Jesus has some measure of relief, uh, where Judas has left the room, and now he knows that the people in the room love him and are going to obey his commandments. And so Jesus lets them in on what's about to happen. 
Uh, Judas was not privy to that information, but these disciples were. And also, you and I are privy to this information because John the author is the person in the story that uh, is recounting all of these things for us. And so just like as a child, I wanted sort of secret information. I wanted to know what's going on. Uh, That's exactly what the disciples are facing. They uh, have heard Jesus say some ominous things. Uh, Jesus said one of them is going to betray him. And then he says, you know how I've been telling all of the, you know, the people opposing me that you can't follow me where I'm going? Well, guess what? Neither can you. So you could imagine that the disciples are really questioning what's going on, Jesus. What in the world are you up to? (laughs) Why don't you just tell us? And so Jesus actually does. Of course, it's not what they're expecting to hear. And it doesn't actually explain what's going to happen in the way that they want it to. But what Jesus does is he shifts his people's attention away from the questions they want answered to the thing that Jesus actually wants them to be thinking about. Right, so right off the bat, Judas leaves the room and Jesus says, okay, now it's time for the Son of Man to be glorified. And all Jesus means by there is he's referring to himself. You can look in Daniel chapter 7. Uh, verses 13 and 14, and you can find out what the Son of Man refers to. It's the Messiah who comes from heaven, and somehow Jesus is going to be glorified, and God is going to do it, and when Jesus does this, he's going to glorify God, and then God is going to glorify him, and all Jesus is saying is that me and the Father, we are in this together. Of course, that doesn't exactly explain what Jesus is talking about, but you and I know exactly what he's referring to, right? He's referring to, now I'm going to be betrayed I'm going to give my life as the ransom to save my people. I'm going to die on the cross. Uh, But this is all to bring God glory. Uh, God is going to demonstrate his justice because he's going to punish sin. And yet God's going to demonstrate his absolute eternal mercy and love and forgiveness because the, the, the punishment is going to fall on him, not his people. Of course, this is how God glorifies himself and why the cross is the thing that we glory in, right? That's why the cross is behind me. That's why many of you have a cross on a necklace right now because it's the profound demonstration of the glory, the awesomeness. Uh, The reason we worship God is because we see him in his holiness and his justice and simultaneously in his love and his mercy. See, Jesus is telling them he's going to go to the cross, but they don't totally understand that, do they? But then Jesus goes further, and he says in verse 33, uh, he calls them little children. And I I love that, right? He calls them technia in Greek, which is not like, uh, it's not condescending in any way. It's what you would call your beloved children. You could also translate it beloved children, um, which is kind of funny considering this is a full-grown man speaking to full-grown men, right? Uh, But even there, we hear sort of the divinity of Christ speaking, right? (laughs) He's saying, I am the Lord himself, and you are my children, little children whom I love. And he says, yet a little while, I'm going to be with you. And you're going to be looking for me, but just as I told those people opposing me, you can't follow me where I'm going. And, uh, of course, Jesus is talking about how he's going to go to the cross to die for his disciples But they don't get that. And, you know, uh, I love if you go down to verse 36, you know, it's almost like Peter ignores everything that happens in verse 34 and 35. And he's like, yeah, 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 enough about that loving each other thing. What was that about going somewhere? And um, can't you just tell me what's going on? 
And um, I can't help but think that, uh, you know, I would put myself first in this category that, you know, if I said, Lord Jesus, what are we supposed to be doing right now? What are we supposed to know? You know, what is the power? Uh, what is the knowledge, you know, that's going to empower me to live through these next days and months as a country? Give me the secret information. You know, let me know what's really going on. I think that's very similar to what Peter wants Jesus to tell him. And what Jesus tells him is what? <laughs> he says, actually, I'm going to give you a new commandment. I want you to love each other to the absolute extent that I have loved you. And if you're anything like Peter, or if you're anything like me, I'm kind of like, yeah, 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 yeah. Let's get back to that going and coming and what's going on in this world. Right? That's exactly where Peter goes. He doesn't pick up what Jesus is putting down. You know, he says this incredible, profound truth about loving one another, and Simon Peter says in verse 36, Lord, where are you going, right? <laughs> um, I think another way of understanding that question is, okay, Lord, what is going on? Tell me what's going on, right? And, uh, you know, Jesus says, you know, you can't follow me. And, you know, Peter, uh, because of his addiction to all this, like, secret knowledge and information, and because he really wants to know what's going on, and he's not really listening to what Jesus has to say about loving one another, what he says is he says, well, pfft, I don't know about all these other disciples, <laughs> you know. I don't know about these guys, but like I will go anywhere you go and I am willing to lay down my life for you. Uh, you know, maybe the other disciples would have said that. You know, uh, Thomas says something similar to that uh, in John 11, but, you know, Peter seems to certainly be saying sort of a bold, uh, almost dangerously proud, you know, assurance that he will not deny the Lord. And um, I hope you're, you're hearing all of the irony in this uh, passage, right? Because Jesus says, will you lay down your life for me? Now, the irony there, of course, is that Peter will not lay down his life for Jesus. He won't even claim to know him. He'll, he'll curse himself and say, you know, God forbid if I ever knew Jesus. He calls down curses on himself and he denies even knowing Jesus. And later on, uh, before morning breaks, uh, Luke tells us that at one point, Peter and Jesus even make eye contact after Peter has denied knowing him. And of course, what's the great irony? The irony is that Peter is not about to lay down his life for Jesus. The irony is Jesus is about to lay down his life for Peter. Jesus says, will you lay down your life for me? <laughs> Actually, greater love is not found than this when a friend lays down his life for his friends. I lay my life down, Jesus says. No one takes it from me. Jesus will lay down his life for Peter and for anyone who trusts in him as Lord. And then if, in case that, you know, wasn't lost on you, that that's what Jesus says, you know, he tells Peter, truly, truly, I say to you, you know, before morning breaks, you're going to deny me three times. And so if that seems, you know, sort of harsh for Jesus to say, um, I think you have to focus in exactly in what's going on in this passage. You know, the very next thing Jesus says, he says, look, don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe in me. You know, he's not trying to slam Peter. Um, you know, he loves Peter. And what Jesus is going to come back to in just a few sentences in the next chapter is this theme, this idea of a new kind of love, a new commandment. And... Um, if I could have our church thinking about anything, um, I think it would be verses 34 and 35. Um, 
you know, I've noticed in myself that I've been reading a lot lately, and the attention to detail on certain amounts of information has, um, you know, been uh, impressive uh, to myself that I care enough to follow these certain rules, right? Uh, so uh, maybe you've experienced this as well, right? Maybe you've been reading the Constitution more closely than you ever have, or maybe you're reading the CDC guidelines closer than you ever have. And there's this sense that we want to get it right, right? And we want this information. Uh, but I have to ask myself, am I reading John 13, 34, and 35 as carefully as I've read anything this past week about guidelines? And of course, the irony is if our church gets verses 34 and 35 correct, we're going to know what we need to know, and we're going to know how to operate. But if we forget love, if we don't love one another, what does Paul say about someone who has all the great spiritual gifts but has not love? I can't remember. Maybe you do. So if I could encourage us to do anything as we think about uh, getting back together and worshiping again and operating as a church, um, I would um, plead with you uh, to take John 13, 34, and 35 and focus as carefully as possible on these words. And remember that he's talking to people who want to know what's going on. And instead of like telling them everything that maybe they want to know, he says this, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Uh, so what does it mean for you know, God's people to love one another? Uh, well, a few weeks ago, Pastor Richard talked about humble love. And this is exactly the context. You know, what does it mean that you and I love one another? It means that you and I love one another in the sense that we look not only to our own interests, but to the interests of others, right? That there is a humility that denies even our own rights and our own roles, and we stoop beneath one another. And of course, the great, you know, beautiful thing about that is if I go out of my way to love and honor you, and you go out of your way to love and honor me, of course, the love and the honor will only increase, and no one gets abused because we're all preferring one another. I mean, this is how marriage works, this is how friendship works, and it's how the church works. If we prefer one another, we put their needs ahead of ours. Uh, you know, this has been a hard thing for the church to wrestle with since its inception. <laughs> uh, Romans 14 is all about this. Uh, you know, Paul says uh, that there are going to be people in the faith who are weaker and stronger, you know, people who uh, are stronger in their faith and people who have weaker consciences, how are they supposed to operate? Well, are the stronger supposed to just look down on the weaker and despise them? Well, what does Paul say? He says in Romans 14, he says, as for the one who's weaker in his faith, welcome him and do not quarrel over opinions. And then Paul says, well, some people want to eat all kinds of foods and some people don't. Don't pass judgment on each other about that. And Paul says some people honor one day special and some people honor all days the same. Don't pass judgment on one another. And Paul says, for if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. Why do you then pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block of hindrance in the way of a brother. So, of course, what the irony of the gospel is, is that 
uh, the stronger you are in the faith, the more humble you are going to be to those weaker in the faith. Uh, You know, when uh, people I talk to in the faith look down on others that they perceive as not as spiritually strong, you know, it's ironic, right? Because actually in that moment, they're really just exposing themselves and in their immaturity, right? Uh, Think about it this way. It's the immature parent who thinks that a child should operate like an adult. It's the mature parent who's patient with the child, who understands kids just need some space sometimes, and they just need understanding. You see, immaturity is the thing that leads to a lack of grace and patience. Maturity leads believers to be more gracious and more loving to those beneath them in the faith. And if you don't think that's true, um, explain to me why Jesus would stoop and wash the feet of his disciples. If anyone was stronger in the faith, it was Jesus. And yet Jesus is willing to do something that you and I would probably never do, and you and I take showers like every day. Jesus, as Peter, as Richard said, has humble love. So the way we love one another, it's marked by humility. Now, the second way we could, uh, you know, address sort of humble love is that it's forgiving, right? Isn't that the whole basis of the gospel is that um, part of the way we understand God's love is that we know that he forgives us. And think about it, Jesus is teaching a message of forgiveness at the time that he's talking to people he knows are going to utterly abandon him. I mean, he's talking to Peter who is about to, to deny even knowing him. <laughs> and he has like a Galilean accent. Everybody knows Peter is on Jesus' side. And yet Jesus loves him. Uh, you know, forgiveness is the key uh, to any healthy relationship, right? I mean, Ephesians 4.32 uh, talks exactly about this. You want to get it right? Ephesians 4.32 says this, Be kind to one another tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Uh, Forgiveness is at the heart of the gospel. I mean, Jesus says, even if your brother sins against you seven times, if he comes to you seven times and says, I repent, you are to forgive him. Uh, Jesus says, you know, those who are forgiven much love God much. Right? There is a direct corollary to our understanding that you and I are forgiven people that empowers us to love and forgive others. You know, if you're looking for secret knowledge, right, or you believe knowledge is power and you want to learn to be empowered to operate through this time, well, the power is the gospel. And the power of knowing how to operate, the power of our church knowing how to reopen Uh, The irony is that the way up is going to be the way down, right? Uh, The way to renewed growth is to let, you know, it die and new life grow out of the soil. It's to be humbled and to forgive. You know, Jesus goes on and uh, he says that his love is self-sacrificing, right? Jesus lays down his life. And so for many of us, that's what love means. It means preferring others, loving them, uh, laying down what you and I would maybe want or think is right. And, uh, you, know, and, you know, one of the things that stresses me out more than anything um, is thinking about the day that we get to come back and worship and that the division that our country is experiencing is going to seep into our congregation, that if you see someone wearing a mask, you're going to despise your brother in your heart. 
Or if you don't see someone wearing a mask, you will despise them in your heart. But friends, this is not the way you learned Christ. You are to accept one another as Christ Jesus has accepted you. We are to forgive one another as Christ forgives us. We're to love one another as Christ loves us. You see, the power, the knowledge, is actually the power and the knowledge of the gospel of grace. I mean, just imagine if everybody who claimed to follow Jesus lived like this for a week. Do you think anything would change in the country? I know that's a, that's a, you know, that's a straw man of an argument, right? Uh, it's not going to happen. But what I can say is it's up to us as a church whether or not we are going to live by the law of the gospel or not. You know, we can't speak on behalf of every Christian or every church, but we can decide as our church, are we going to be marked by the love of the gospel or not? And you better, and I better. Uh, these are not suggestions. I am not suggesting to you that you love each other like this. Um, on behalf of Jesus Christ, I am commanding you. And if command bothers you, uh, friends, you have a problem with Jesus, not me. What does Jesus call this kind of love? This is a new commandment I give to you. This is not life advice. This is not optional to take or not. Jesus says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Uh, Jesus will go on and say, if you love me, <laughs> this is 14, 15, if you say you love, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. <laughs> Jesus says it again, you are my friends if you do what I command. <laughs> I mean, if you just read 1 John, you know, the same author, he's all over this idea. Uh, the loving one another is not an option. He says this in chapter 3, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. I hope you're hearing the clarity that Jesus is speaking, um, the knowledge, the empowerment, uh, the thing that we're looking for to guide us through this, this is not optional to believe or not believe. In a very real way, friends, the gospel, uh, the good news that we are forgiven and to love one another that same way, it is a commandment. And this is such a great test if you really want to follow Jesus Christ. Uh, because you may say, well, no one has the right to tell me what to do. No one has the right to give me commandments. Uh, well, friends, I would suggest to you Jesus is the only one who has the right to give you these commandments. And the mark of a true believer, if you read John in 1 John, is a true believer will follow these commandments. And a believer will not resent these commandments. A believer actually loves the commandments of the Lord. I mean, this is all over the Old Testament. Um, I know it seems like a lifetime ago, but there was once a time that a younger uh, less, you know, uh, discouraged version of myself existed when I thought we'd have church every Sunday like normal. And I preached on Psalm 119. And in Psalm 119, listen to how this believer talks. He says, with my whole heart, I seek you, God. Let me not wander from your commandments. <laughs> I mean, is that how you and I operate? If I said, Lord, I want to seek you with all of my heart. Help me to feel affirmed. <laughs> Lift up my head today. 
Well, what the psalmist says is he says, I want to seek you with all my heart and I want to follow all of your commandments. He goes on and he says, I'm a sojourner. You know, I'm, I'm a wanderer in this life. I don't know where I'm going. I don't know what's happening. I'm a sojourner on the earth, right? Hide not your commandments from me. You see, the mark of a believer is not that you begrudgingly obey the commandments. You run to them like you run to online news or to the theories or to the rules of the CDC or whatever you are running to because you know that in them are the words of eternal life. You know that if you get verses 34 and 35 right, uh, you will not be led astray, that they really are the words of life. So friends, I just want to ask you, you know, do you think knowledge is power? Do you think knowledge empowers you to know how to live and to operate? You know, that sense that power, you know, makes you breathe deep and stand up straight with your back straight. Well, friends, uh, the law and the commandment to love one another, that is the power of the gospel. And friends, when we gather together, I hope you want nothing more than to, command, to follow the commandments of Jesus Christ as a church. I can't wait to worship with you again. We'll see you soon.